Hello all, this is Matt Kabir Floyd and welcome along to episode 3 of my All Out podcast. I went back to my old Sky Sports roots for this one and spoke to the fascinating person that is former England captain Nasser Hussain. Nowadays, Nasser is one of the nicest people in TV, but he wasn't always like that. He tries to explain why he was so intense and angry as a player before we get right into a debate on unconscious bias and race. As you'd imagine, he has some very interesting views. It's an absolute pleasure to have one of my favourite ex-Sky Sports colleagues on this episode of All Out. Nasser, you love being introduced like that, don't you? <laughs> you did it. You did it many a year, Floydy. You did it well as well. My ex-colleague, my colleague used to call me on that Sky Sports News Cross. It were good times, mate. How are you? How was your winter? Was it nice to not be on the road the whole time or did you miss it? I miss it. You know, it's part of you, really, whether it's a player or growing up as an England schoolboy. Uh, every winter you get away. We're very lucky as players or broadcasters. You go abroad and get a bit of sun on your back. Uh, we got to South Africa for a couple of weeks, but even that ended in chaos, really, with the tour being called off uh, because of COVID protocols, etc. So it was a bit odd. Uh, we had to do it remotely um, from Isleworth. Um, going into Sri Lanka, at, um, going into Isleworth to do the Sri Lanka series at three in the morning was a bit of an eye-opener. Um, setting the alarm clock and scraping the ice off the car. You'd have been there, done that. Hey, welcome those to my world, mate. <laughs> I've had that. From, I've had that from Ian Ward for the last six months, basically. <laughs> Welcome to my world, uh, India. The timings were a bit uh, better, um, but no, I thought I thought it went well. The more, most important thing, as you know, was the cricket was excellent. Um, in a winter where we've all struggled with lockdown and there's not a lot to do for the players to in lockdown and in bubbles to put on such a show, um, I think was great. Really, I think I was glued to my TV screen, whether it be the tests. Or the one day is. How long have you been at Sky for now then? Uh, good question. I retired, what, 2004 and pretty much the very next week, um, Barney Francis said to me, you've got a job at Sky, um, hurry up and get to Trent Bridge or wherever it was. So um, since then, so said best part of 17 years and it's been good fun. Wow, that really has flown by. When you first started, were you a natural in front of the camera and on the mic, or did you have to really work at it? Definitely not a natural in front uh, on a microphone. Definitely not. I guess on a camera, you are a little bit used to it. Having been a player and a captain, I had to do a lot of things uh, either for Sky or press conferences or various media outlets. So you get used to having a camera on you. It's never, you know, never completely second nature, but you get used to that. I think microphone. As you know, first time you hear your own voice, you think, oh, my God, is that me? And I still have to turn myself down now if I'm at home and my, my son's watching the cricket and I'm waffling on like I am now. I still have to turn it down. So, um, no, you never get used to it. Um, you have to work. You listen to others. I remember doing one gig with Channel 4, actually, and Richie Benno was doing it. And Richie sort of dragged me to one side at the end of the constant and said, yes, you, you know, I won't do a Richie impersonation, but <laughs> he said, your, your, your content was good, but just make sure you put your lip mic down when you're not speaking. Don't speak too much, things like that. So I watched Richie, Athers, Ian Smith, you know, Ian Bishop, some of these guys who are very good at it over the years, that great Channel 9 team of Greg and Benno and Chapel and you know, it was you sort of try and learn from them a little bit. You learn on the job, as you know. You don't 
go off and do all these courses on broadcasting. You just try and learn on the job and learn from your mistakes. What did you find the hardest aspect of it then? What, what took the longest to nail down? Uh, I guess that you're no longer a player. You're not, you're not a cheerleader for the team anymore, a team that you've tried to build for a number of years, you know, that England team that you're constantly, uh, every day, worrying about results and your own game. When you're a broadcaster, you've got to be neutral and you're not a cheerleader for the team. And then pretty soon after that, obviously they're winning the Ashes in 2005 and they're great moments and you don't want to be standing there cheering them on. Uh, you want to try and call it fairly. And then they go to Australia a year or so later and they're losing the Ashes 5-0 uh, with Fletcher, my coach, who I'd worked with with four years, in charge and everyone nailing him. And you suddenly, you know, the loyalty to Fletcher has to go out the window and you have to call it as you see it, really. So once, once we got through that winter, uh, I think then I just sort of realised that just call it as you see it, Nass. You're not playing the game anymore. And, you know, once the day's done, you go home and, and you worry about all the other things. You don't worry about the result of the game. Even though I'm still an England fan and want England to do well, you're not tied up in the result of the game anymore. I know, obviously, different commentators, pundits have very different styles and there's no one right or wrong way to do it, I guess. But if you were explaining this to, to someone just coming in to commentary, what would you say are, are the key things you need to do well to be a, a good pundit and commentator? That's a good question. I mean, you might probably asking the wrong bloke. Um, I would say, like anything else in life, you need to work, work hard. You need to prepare. Um, you need to, when you're sat at the back of the box and it's not your stint, make sure you've just got one or two things in your mind that you might take on that stint um, when you are on. You need to concentrate. However dull or the game is, one mistake that you make will be there in recording forever. You need to concentrate harder than you've ever concentrated more. Less is more. We're always drilled in that. Uh, and it varies from parts of the world. Floyd, as you know, if you work in India, they want you to talk. And often when you do, less is more and you put your microphone down for an over. Someone will be in your ear saying, hold on, we pay you to talk. People want to hear you. <laughs> Whereas in England, I think we waffle on a bit too much and people want that silence and they don't want people rabbiting on all the time. Uh, stay um, upbeat, with, stay in touch with the game. I'd say Duncan Fletcher said to me when I got the job, he said, great job with Sky. Just remember in five years time, the game will have changed. And it had changed. Kevin Peterson was switch hitting Scott Styrus to six over mid-wicket or extra cover, whichever one you want to call it, within that period. And the game does change, and you've got to move with those changes. Um, and, you know, learn from people around you. We're very lucky at Sky. You know, I look, always look at Bumble and the way he calls key moments. Athers and his, you know, Athers is very, um, he's not, stubborn would, is, would be the right word, but that's because he's, once he's made his mind up, He's pretty clear on that. You can't flip from one to another. There's a lot of people who flip from one to another and viewers and people pick up on that. They go, well, hold on a minute. Last week you were calling it differently and this week you're doing something completely different. So um, I think if you try and stick to all that and have some fun, I mean, Bumble's the best of that. Have some fun and enjoy it. There's some worse jobs you could be doing. How important is it also to coordinate outfits with your co-pundit? Because I'm sure I switched on the other day and you and Athos were wearing the same jacket and you both looked like you were from a tribute band for One Direction. We got stuff. We got told, <laughs> you know, that it's T20 gear. So you, you get your best casual T20 gear on, please. So me and Ath 
in lockdown have gone to our cupboards and got our best casual T20 gear on and Key and Ward turn up in their suits. So I noticed your tweet. Thanks for that. I really appreciate that. Cheers, bud. Listen, to be honest with you, I shouldn't be throwing stones in glass houses with my gears, that's for sure. Uh, in all seriousness, what would you have done if you hadn't gone into the media? I have no idea. I mean, I'd have probably gone into coaching. I'd have probably, you know, as you can see from Sky, as you know, I like the analysis side of things. I love looking at technique and how players are changing their game and how the game is evolving and changing. If I'd had the patience, you know, you know me, I'm a bit up and down and you can't be that as a coach. The best coaches, whether it be Fletcher or Flower or Fleming, all these guys, you know, that Silverwood, they're all very level and calm. You know, when you're collapsing in a heap or dropping catches or the opposition of 500 for two, um, I'm not sure I would have stayed calm, but I think I'd have probably gone into coaching. Um, who knows? Like I say, I was very lucky to get to get the job. Um, and I still try and stay across coaching. I still do a bit of coaching at my son's school. I like coaching at that younger level because it's a cliche, but those kids, boys and girls, are sponges and they love to pick up on any little coaching uh, drill that you give them. So I like coaching at the younger level. So were you ever offered a job or close to getting a job in coaching or administration before you, you took the Sky job? Um, no, no. Like I said, I was, you know, when I was busy losing the ashes in 11 days in Australia and sticking them in in Brisbane, um, Barney Francis, the, the head of Sky Cricket then, or head of Sky actually, was chatting to me saying, um, you know, we're looking at you to come on board. Are you interested? And I said, well, if I carry on playing the way I am, I might need it. And then I retired at Lords, and literally that day he rang me up and said, there's a job for you if you want it. Um, so the choice was taken out of my hand, really. I have a huge admiration uh, for Michael Atherton. Um, and I spoke to Ath, and I'd watched Ath and his career develop in the media um, as a broadcaster. And going into a, a you know a combox with Ath, Bumble, you know, Gower was my childhood hero, both and one of the greatest cricketers that's ever played the game, arguably England's greatest cricketer. Um, and the rest was just too easy a road to go down. I mean, maybe too easy. You know, that might have been the only thing was maybe that was the easy option. And the more difficult option is to go and do a bit of coaching. Um, but it never really came on the radar. There's been some, while I've been at Sky, there's been some other jobs come up um, that people have offered, but... I'm afraid I'm doing the best job in the world at the moment. Any other job compared to what I'm doing at the moment would be just um, wouldn't be good enough. I'm afraid, Floyd. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Actually, is that it for you then? Is, is it you know job for life in the media, whether it's it's at Sky or somewhere else? Would you rule out ever doing a, a high level coaching or administration job in the future or not? I think you're a fool to rule anything out. I'd say. I mean, you know, situations change. Uh, you might not be required anymore. You might be axed. Things change, so you're stupid to... I mean, you've got to stay on your toes, mate. I mean, we had two this week or last week in Stuart Broad and Dinesh Kartik, you know, as guest commentators who are still playing the game. I looked at those two and thought, these two have taken to punditry pretty naturally, to be honest. They are the best two we have had on Sky as guest commentators since I've been there in that 17 years. So... There's always someone knocking at the door, you know, Joe Root in a few years' time or whoever will be Ben Stokes. They're all good candidates. So, um, no, you just keep plodding along. And as long as people, you know, ring you up and say you've still got a gig, 
And if that gets taken away, it's like anything, you know, you, you, do, you then move on and do something else. You know, Rob Key has come in, done very well. I think Rob has been one of the best additions to our team over the last few years. So you know what Sky like, they're always trying to add and improve and go in that direction. Um, so while there's a job, I'll take it. And if they ring me up and say, can you go and do something else? I'll look at my options. They're not going to be getting rid of you anytime soon, mate, that's for sure. Um, let, let's take you back to your upbringing and your playing career. Now, when you were captain of England and before that as well, you had a reputation for being spiky and a bit intense. I never saw that when working with you at Sky, of course. So how spiky were you in those days? I've, I was. It was very natural to me. I, I don't know any other way of putting it, but I had, I had anger issues. There are certain people that when bad things happen to them, um, they can react very calmly. Graham Gooch, I played 15, 20 years with Graham Gooch, and whatever score he got, he used to come in, take his pads off, and answer the, the, you know, the shed load of mail that he'd get from fans and supporters, and he'd just do autographs and put them in the post. Even if he was out LBW Alderman again or a dodgy decision, never threw his bat, never threw his gear, put his gloves, meticulous. Graham was like that. Now, I, as I said earlier, I am, you know, if I'm out, dodgy decision, bad shot, or just out, you know, I saw, I don't know if you saw that tweet the other day of that club cricketer getting out and someone followed him in the dressing room. <laughs> the guy with hitting, hitting the wall with a pad. Exactly. Now, that was me. And that was me very naturally. You know, that's how I just reacted. Now, since it was more me as a player, as a sportsman, even on the golf course now, if I mess up and duck hook it left off the tee, I can't understand the people. And I watch the golf now and they take it so calmly and they're losing <laughs> millions of pounds or dollars. It's just something inside me. And my son said this to me the other day when I, last year or something, when East Toys came out the cot in a game. And I went, come on, you've got to take this thing. And he went, oh, sorry, Dad, I just feel this urge well up inside of me and I've got to <laughs> the old block. I said I said I know that feeling yeah inside me I thought yeah I know that feeling so I just think it was something how I was really uh, and I couldn't change it I, I sort of wish I was the other way maybe it came from my old man where every game every innings was important there was I was left in no doubt from my old man whether it was an England game an Essex game a benefit game Ilford Clay Hall game that that innings was like a World Cup final and you have to give it your utmost. So, you know, every innings, and it, it held me, it made me the player I was, but it also held me back a little bit in that I think your best players don't have that fear of failure. I, I, you watch Kevin Peterson when he gets out. You, any When working for Sky, you see Peterson get out and within a second he'd be changed or 10 seconds and on that balcony at Lords or wherever. And I was like, well, I'd be sat there looking at the monitor and analysing. If you can just bin it, move on, uh, not worry about failure too much. I do think it makes you a, a better cricketer, a better sportsman. You know, if you can, if you, if you are so worried about getting out and the shots you play, I do think it holds you back a little bit. But it obviously does make you the cricketer you are as well, because every innings is important. Well, maybe that was just your personality. Not everyone can be the same. It sounds like you couldn't have been that person that, that Kevin Peterson was or Brendan McCullum, very similar. I spoke to him a few days ago and he, he was saying exactly the same thing. You know, fear of failure is the one thing that holds you back and he's able to just brush it away. But it's not that simple for most people. Yeah, I agree. And it, it helped me in, in the captaincy side, really, because I understood people like Andrew Caddick 
Caddy had a massive fear of failure. It was his biggest thing. We had two opening bowlers in Goff who just loved the camera and never feared failure at all. Just wanted to be centre stage. You've known Goffy for a long time. Goffy loves being centre stage. The bigger the occasion, the more the ashes, hat tricks, everything. He just loved it. Whereas Caddy would be, you know, we'd have a dressing room where if we were batting, um, you know, Caddy would put the volume up on the on the music machine in the corner and he'd be dancing away and because he didn't have to bowl for a day or half a day with our batting lineup. <laughs> um, and if we were bowling, he'd be like a little in the corner. You'd look at him and he'd be a nervous wreck because he'd have to go out and perform. So I probably understood Caddy a little bit. My, I spoke to Graham at Cheltenham, Graham Gooch, about this. I had this fear of failure. How do you handle nerves, waiting to bat? And Graham looked at me as if I had two heads. He said, what fear of failure? What are you on about? Nervous? You're playing cricket. And, and I got it straight away there that Graham Gooch just never got nervous, just loved playing the game of cricket. Um, but as you say, every for me, every game, every innings was like an exam, like GCSE or A-level. But that helped me as a captain because I understood other people in the team that were like that. Going back to your dad, I had the pleasure of meeting him once in his indoor school in Ilford, chain-smoking away in his office. <laughs> uh, really interesting, fascinating guy. Absolutely love the game. Born in uh, Chennai in Tamil Nadu, came over here having played, what, one first-class game he played over there? Yeah. Um, so obviously, you know, he knew the game, he could play the game. Uh, you said that you wouldn't have been the player that you became without him. And he, I guess he was quite pushy then. I mean, uh, would you describe him in that way? Yeah, but not in a bad way. These things get pigeonholed a little bit. Pushy in as much as he just wanted what was best for his kids, really. You know, we had a quite... A, settled middle-class upbringing in Chennai, you know, uh, Madras then. We used to live our lives on the Chepok Stadium where they play and have played for years now. Chennai Super Kings will be playing there very soon. So, um, but um, he wanted to come here probably for the education for us. And he loved England. He absolutely loved England. Apart from the weather, everything about, and occasionally he'd always tell us about the uh, exchange rate between rupees and pounds and how much it was, etc. He's exchange everything. Do you know how much that um, pair <laughs> of shoes is in rupees or whatever? Um, but we used to live our life down that cricket school, Ilford Cricket School, every day. While you were on your Game Boy and things like that, all the things <laughs> we used to do, Floyd. Um, I, I, you know, every day, every night down the cricket school. Um, and, you know, that sort of pushing you and I used to want to stay at home or, you know, do other things as teenage boys would or young boys would. He used to just say, no, nope, that's not an option. We're going down the cricket school. Um, so whether that's pushy or not, probably is. But I know I wouldn't have played for Clayall, Ilford, Essex, England. I would never have been England captain. And I certainly wouldn't be working on Sky now if it wasn't for my old man. So everything I've done is pretty much down to my old man. And obviously my mum as well. My mum for that balance of when you have got five ducks in your in a row or your leg spin is absolutely got the yips and your dad is going ballistic. You know, your mum just to put a bit of balance in it and go <laughs> eat your dinner, do your homework and go to bed, son. It'll be all right in the morning sort of <laughs> attitude. You and I both mixed race, half Indian, half English uh, for you as your father was Indian, mother English. For me, it was the other way around. Uh, I'm just interested. What were your experiences like growing up mixed race in Essex? Um, well, I mean, first of all, I can. I always felt English, so 
My heroes, as I say, were Graham Gooch and David Gower. My golfing heroes, Seve Ballesteros. Ballesteros. I felt very sort of Western. Uh, maybe it's because I went to an English private school, forest school in Snaresbrook. But I was very, very proud and understood my Indian side, my dad's side, being born in Madras. Loved that side of me and my family. And every time I went back, loved meeting up with family and tickets for various people around India, just everything about it. One of my favourite moments was going back to the MCC, the Madras Cricket Club, and they made myself and dad honorary members uh, in a day-night, uh, in a one-day international day. I only got one run. It was a long journey for me, old man, for the one run. But that was one of my most favourite trips, going back with my dad as England captain and seeing everyone there and the sort of pride on his face that he'd left India and come back with a son that was in England cricket captain was just phenomenal. But I felt very English. Um, and But that Ilford Cricket School, we would have a, a British West Indian Caribbean net. In those days, hammering us 5-0 in series. We'd have an Indian net, Pakistani, British Pakistani net, all having to go at each other in a very friendly way. Every time India, Pakistan were playing, we'd have, you know, and I would, I would, being amongst that, it was a multicultural, very enjoyable environment, really. It was what I grew up in. You know, Ilford was multicultural. Snaresbrook, Forest School, uh, you know, had a lot of people uh, of different ethnicities. So it was all around me. I probably was <laughs> didn't fit in with either at times. You know, the, 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 the white, white English lad might say, well... Um, you know, what's the funny name? And occasionally I'd get a bit of racism and call the P word. And, um, and then occasionally the sort of British Asians would look at me and go, well, you know, white public school, middle class boy. What does he understand what we're going through? Um, you know, and when I played for England, occasionally why, you know, traitor, you'd be called on the boundary in a nice sort of gentle, humorous sort of way. So at times I didn't fit in with either camp, but it never bothered me. It really didn't. It, honestly, um, I just saw myself as English and enjoyed growing up in this multicultural society, mixed race, um, so many different backgrounds. And, um, you know, it was, it was good fun for me. I totally resonate with all of what you've said there, actually. And I think in a lot of ways, we're quite similar in that we, we went to good schools. We had good backgrounds, good upbringings, fantastic parents. Um, and probably culturally more English than we were Indian because we were brought up over here and, and we don't ostensibly look particularly Indian compared to, to someone who, who's totally Asian. Two, two, things, two things I'll say for that. One was my dad was very keen on us to, you know, adopt the Western way. So, he, you know, we, however much we loved our in, Indian uh, upbringing, our Indian side, he was very keen for us to, you know, to, to, to be English and, and, and uh, adopt that lifestyle and, and go with it and don't stick to what we were, were brought up, how we were brought up in India. Um, but also it, it sort of resonated with me later on when I, we were playing against Pakistan and I was in the nets and two British Asians were behind us at Old Trafford and they were, they were again just chirping, going, oh, Wazim and Waka are going to kill you tomorrow, saying you're not going to get any runs. Again, tongue-in-cheek, good fun, banter with me. And I wrote a piece, I think I was writing in the Sunday Telegraph then, I wrote a piece saying, wouldn't it be nice if these lads, you know, this we need to get them supporting England, 
There was so much they could offer. The whole mowing alley, the whole where are we going with our British Asians? How, how can we get more British Asians involved in the game and playing for England and coming through? I went down that road in an article in a real positive, because it's been so good to me. It's given me everything in my life. Wouldn't it be great for others? And the great Imran Khan wrote a reply, actually. It was, it, it was spot on. He said, it's all well-intentioned, Nasser, but you are a whitish, middle-class, public school boy. You don't, do you understand what's going on in that neighborhood, in that upbringing, in that part of the world? Um, there are more difficult challenges than you probably went through. And that is absolutely spot on. And that is not, you know, something I'll never forget is that I was very fortunate in the road that I took. Not, that road is not available, as you know, Floydy. That road is not always available to everyone. Yeah, so you've had very positive experience generally. I, I guess I would say that I have as well. But when you look at some of the recent issues that have arisen, you know, you've got the Azim Rafiq and Yorkshire situation. You've got the, the two umpires uh, who've come out uh, and, and said that the ECB is institutionally racist. When you look at stuff like that, do we have to accept that there is an issue in terms of maybe unconscious bias or inequality within cricket in the UK that needs to be seriously looked at? Well, this is where I have to stop you a little bit because I, I can only comment on what I know. And even though I am absolutely certain that there is, pro that, not absolutely certain, but there is, there is probably stuff out there that I didn't go through, all I can talk about is my experiences. And my experiences at Essex um, were mainly good. There was an underlying current that people in the south of the county, Ilford, Clayhall, that sort of area where there was a high British Asian community, were frowned upon a little bit. I used to turn up to the cricket school and a lot of the British Asian community would go to my dad and say, why are they picking the lad, white lad from Chelmsford, the white lad from Colchester? My lad is just as good. And there was a, a general feeling back then, even when Essex had a middle order of Hussein, Shahid, Salim Malik, Ravi Bopara was coming through, through the ranks and through the, Varun Chopra came through that cricket school and the, the list is long. There was still a feeling that if you were white middle class from North Essex, Colchester, Chelmsford, that sort of area, you would get the tap on the shoulder first to go Monday night um, Essex Nets. Um, I would say that recently, actually, with the word, work that, uh, I don't know if you know Arfan Akram, the work he yep. does in, in South Essex, in that community. I think Essex in particular have realised they had an issue. Whether it was right or wrong, there was an issue, there was a feeling there that that community was being left behind. Um, and I think the work that Essex have done in that community uh, has been quite brilliant. Uh, and I'm very lucky in a county, I think now, that does um, listen to its British Asian community. Um, it, it's a very complex situation. I don't like commenting on cases that I don't know exactly what happened. Yeah, I'm not asking you to comment on, on those cases in particular, but I'm just thinking, I mean, I haven't experienced a whole load of racism myself like you but if there are these situations arising it probably makes you step back and think well maybe my experiences aren't aren't the norm for everyone and that there are some issues around which need to be to be looked at and examined closely absolutely and that's where you need diversity all the way from the bottom to the top really so 
until recently, I think the ECB board were, you know, were pretty much all white and, you know, you need diversity in that board. You need to understand what that, what is, as what, as it, as what, um, uh, Imran Khan said about me, what does Nasru Hussain know about what's really going on in inner city Birmingham and inner city London? Um, what, do, what if you're a white middle class person at the top, what do you know really is going on in the areas that you're trying to target? So you need diversity right from grassroots all the way up. You need coaches. You look at the work Ebony is doing with their ACE program in South London. I mean, e Ebony, as a, as a black female cricketer, has been there worn the t-shirt, done it, she will know exactly what that, um, you know, that black girl in South London, the barriers, the challenges they face, she will know that and she will be able to overcome that and help overcome that. And the work she is doing is phenomenal. At the top, you need people. Um, you need people in between. You're, you're, the, the situation, I always use it as an example, Moen Ali. You know, Moen Ali, what a role model he is for any young Brit, forget me, Moen Ali is a great role model for any British Asian trying to get into, an, uh, into a club side, a county side, an England side. You know, that, that time that Moen, when they won, they beat whoever at Edgebaston. And the England boys were all in, in waiting to do their shot and waiting to spray um, the champagne. And Moen, because of his religion, didn't want that champagne anywhere near him. And you saw Alistair Cook just say, hold on, lads, wait. Moen, you're such an integral part of this team. You come in, we'll do all the photos, and then Mo, when you're happy, you go out and we'll do the champagne. And that, for me, that bit of video actually is, will speak more than uh, anything else because that is what understanding diversity, understanding that we are all different, we do things differently, um, and we find certain things more important than other things. And that's a team understanding a multicultural environment that we all play in. I agree with that as well. I, I think actually in the UK, we're a lot more advanced than a, a lot of other places in terms of integration. And, and you can see that in the number of Asian players and black players that have played over the years. It, it seems a little bit at the moment, though, that it, it's kind of slowed down a bit in terms of the British Asians coming through. You know, we've got Moeen. We've got Adil Rashid, a couple of younger guys coming through as well. But do you still feel we haven't quite made the most of this untapped resource of British Asian cricketers for the English national team? Because when you look at club cricket, I think it's something like 30% still. I don't know the answers. I try and keep abreast of it. I try and speak to our fan at Essex. But you're right. for the And it will always be highlighted, you know, the next champions trophy or a next um, World Cup game and it's India, Pakistan and you see the crowd and you see the fanatic fans and it's sold out within a minute and, it, and you realise, hold on, there is this untapped resource out there that we are not. And you're right, that we could do so much more. And, young, you know, young black cricketers. I grew up playing Devon Malcolm, De Freitas, Gladstone Small, Chris Lewis, Dean Headley. The list is endless. You know, I've forgotten more than there that I can remember. The list was endless and that has dwindled away more than anything else in that uh, that is an area that absolutely we need to look at. It's a very complex issue though, Floyd. It is not as easy as just saying we need to do more. Um, it is a very complex issue and the only real solution is from top to bottom 
having a diverse look at it, having people of different backgrounds involved, even in women's cricket. You know, my daughter plays, my daughter plays the game and I don't want her turning up um, and being the odd one out and turning up and having a male coach and a male umpire uh, and a male scorer and the, the women are the ones inside doing the tees. That's not what I want. I want a female coach, a female umpire, all the players being female and the, you know, the dad, me inside making cups of tea and biscuits or whatever. So um, I think there's more we can do all the way through. Um, and um, the fact that there are these people out there saying, hold on, I, I, things didn't go the way they should be for me. I don't think we should ever, ever ignore those people that stand up and raise their voice. I think they should be absolutely, uh, you know, all inquiries possible should be made to make sure that it doesn't happen again in the future. Yeah, and I think it's also a society problem as much as anything rather than a specifically a cricket problem, but they obviously interlink. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with those particular cases. Uh, let's finish with a bit of positive punditry then, just a... a couple of questions to finish us off here give me a couple of players over the next few months who are not established players who you think are going to burst onto the scene who should we be looking out for jeez now you've got me there you could have warned me you're going to ask me for some <laughs> Put you on the spot uh, now. this is what you do <laughs> my essex hat on and, and dan lawrence I think I know he's played a couple of tests, but Dan Lawrence in that in the hardest of conditions in India seemed to have something about him. He has that sort of you know that swagger, that Essex swagger that we all love. You know <laughs> that strut. Um, he could be playing for Surrey with the strut that he's got. But <laughs> when I've spoken to him in, in, in interviews like this, he's got confidence, but not in a arrogant sort of way. And more importantly, he looks like he's got the game as well. So. I think um, I think Dan Lawrence. Um, I, I'm, I'm um, you know I think Zach Crawley's got a massive future ahead of him with the bat. The lad Robinson, um, the seamer. I've heard some very very good things about him. He continues to take wickets in first class cricket. Um, I think he'll have a, he'll get a lot of wickets this summer and be pushing his way. Whether in Australia, whether he needs a bit more pace, we shall see. But I think he. He will take a lot of wickets this summer and be there or thereabouts. And I think he'll play for England this summer. What have England got a better chance of winning, the World T20 or the Ashes? Well, I mean, I, I go on history and history tells you an Ashes away is an absolute nightmare. And this comes from a bloke who lost it in 11 days. So <laughs> even, you know, uh, Cook's side and Flintoff's side, um, had an absolute nightmare. That's why I always hold that Strauss side in 2010-11 as one of the great victories of all time for English cricket to go there and win that series. So I think the Australia series, the Ashes, is more difficult. I think the, what Owen Morgan is doing with the white ball stuff is phenomenal. They reached the final there last time. So I think that's more likely. Um, but, you know, I don't think Australia are as strong um, as they make out. And the batting in particular, I think there are a couple of areas that England can exploit, but the Kookaburra ball away from home in Australia um, is always a challenge for England. I hope I'm wrong, but I think the World T20 is more likely at this stage. 
So much good cricket to look forward to this year. It really is wall to wall, isn't it? I tell you what, Nas, I've really enjoyed that. I've missed talking to you. <laughs> my, my Sky Sports colleague, as you <laughs> used to call me on those news crosses, Floyd. Are you playing this summer, Matt? Are you, uh, are you still hacking it for Hampstead or, where, or have you gone big money move somewhere else? No, I'm a one club man. I've been there since I was nine years old. I retired last year, but I actually had a net yesterday and I think I might be getting the bug back. We'll see. Still young, only 40. Plenty of years left in me. <laughs> Maybe you come down and watch me one day. Anyway, Nas, it was fantastic to talk to you. Really appreciate you doing that, mate. Cheers, Floydie. Anytime, man.